name's Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which, by the way, is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast, and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm here today with Jean McWilliams-Blasberg, the author of novels The Nine and Eden, and the winner of the Beverly Hills Book Awards for Women's Fiction. A graduate of Smith College, Jean worked in finance and writing cases for Harvard Business School. I actually wrote one too a long time ago. She has a blog and does extensive travel writing. She's the founder of the Westerly Memoir Project and a board member of the Boston Book Festival and Grub Street. She currently splits time between Boston, Massachusetts, and Westerly, Rhode Island. So welcome, Jean. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me, Zibby. I'm so delighted to be here. So tell us what The Nine is about and what inspired you to write it. Oh, okay. So The Nine is the story of a boy who goes off to a very prestigious boarding school. It was his mother's hope and dream to get him into this school. And she really is under the impression she's got him all set and he's headed off for a stellar future. But when he gets to the school, he kind of uncovers an underground world. The Nine is the name of the secret society that taps him, and he uncovers a crime as he's cavorting around with this group, and he becomes more obsessed with solving the crime than making his mother's hopes and dreams come true. So their realities need to reconcile, and it's about a family's experience as this boy goes off and the redefinition of success for them. The second part of your question? What made you write write this book? So I was writing a historical novel that spanned 100 years and had a lot of edits to do on it that I got overwhelmed with. So The Nine was the story that just started percolating in my brain, and it was kind of the mistress I kept while I had this daunting editing exercise that I really needed to do. This is your procrastination Yeah, method. this yeah. was. I had this other idea. I said, okay, so if 100 years of a family saga with all these characters is getting a lot of feedback, a lot of objections, I'm going to write a fast-moving suspenseful, action-packed story with only three characters that last four years. So I ripped off this first draft because I was at a stage in my life where my kids were going off into the world and it involved a lot of faith. I was also hearing stories in the news about how some of the schools, similar schools and these schools that my kids were going to were mixed up with controversy around cover-up and sexual misconduct over the years. And then I also, I think this was the push, but, and this might sound kind of crazy, I do Torah study once a month with a group at my temple in Brookline, Massachusetts, and we were studying the Hannah and Sam Yale story. And something about it felt I don't know, I'd connected with how Hannah must have felt handing her son over to the priest who had kind of scorned her and the temple when her son was weaned. And I'm doing air quotes around the word weaned because I kind of felt like maybe at 14, my son was barely weaned and I was turning him over. And 
it was something about kind of the fleeting nature of motherhood, how fast things go, and how we do our best to turn our kids over prepared for what they're going to face in the world. But it's unclear (laughs) (laughs) whether you're ever prepared for what's going to happen to you. So I felt like there was this metaphor, like this deeper, the story of motherhood that's really like thousands of years old of just the hope and also the worry. But in the end, there's nothing you can do. You've got to let go. So I wanted to write something about that moment. And in the end, in all the revisions, the book's really about this relationship and the intrigue and scandal and running around with the secret society keeps you turning the page. But I feel like it's really the scaffolding on which the deeper meaning has to do with how a family evolves over the process of a kid growing up and going off and doing stuff. I won't say what kind of stuff, but yeah, just any (laughs) kind of stuff. Give it away. Yeah. 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 Well, it's great because you really gave such a good look at sort of the whole dynamic of what happens when the kid's away. And there there was all this um, time, all the times in the book where the mother Hannah is like wondering what the son is doing, her son. And she said, Sam's mom, you know, she kept a list of topics in her purse so that when she actually had time to talk to him, she could like whip through it. And of course, what she found like mortifying. And then she insisted that Sam be on Facebook And then in the book, he wrote, his occasional posts and tags combined with infrequent texts and weekly phone calls became the data with which I filled in the narrative of his life. I pictured him waking up, going to class, eating meals, swimming, and studying, comforted by the notion that what little else he might have time for was easy to piece together. There was no substitute, however, for seeing him in the flesh. So tell me about how to glean the most from a picture on a website or a post on Facebook and that feeling like you have to try to extract so much meaning out of some pixels. I know. I mean, I don't think it's just boarding school moms who try to get glimpses of what's going on with their kids from just little sound bites, little pictures or posts or tags. And you might call it like stalking, but it's not really. I think it's just also getting pleasure out of seeing what they're doing with their friends. I see when my son went off to boarding school, it was kind of the early days of Facebook. So I think I put a lot more weight in those pictures I'd see every once in a while. Also, he was a, you know, kind of a a shy, quiet kid. And I knew if there was a picture out there, it was kind of a big deal for him. So it must have meant a lot. Nowadays, I think there are like just constant images and people don't think twice about it. But there was a time when I think I read a lot into these pictures. Hannah is probably similar. She wouldn't allow Sam to be on social media until he begged when he went away to this boarding school. But yeah, I mean, I know parents who talk to their kids every day when they're away or multiple times a day, lots of texts. My experience with my kids is that we tried to distance ourselves a little so that the letting go and the being let go could be easier. And it's a moment of real discipline, I think, to not be in touch, not constantly check in in all the ways we can now. And to wait for that weekly phone call with maybe the list by the phone of the things you want to remember to ask. I feel like, you know, that might not be something that's been written about that much. It's, yeah, I don't know how to help anyone with that, but all I can say (laughs) is that Hannah goes through it. A lot of us go through it. I tried to be authentic and vulnerable in writing her character. 
And you mentioned before we turned on the microphones that you, your husband had gone to boarding school, but you came from a giant public high school in Newport Beach, California, yeah. and how this world just seemed so different to you and you were thrown into it and then your kids went. So what has that been like? I mean, compare it to how you grew up. And Yeah, so I'm really excited. In a few weeks, I'm going out to Newport Beach and I'm going to do a talk at a bookstore, Lido Village Books, right near where I went to high school. And maybe we'll all have a good laugh. <laughs> Although, you know, now Newport Beach is the home of the Varsity Blues scandal. So maybe everything's changed in Newport Beach as well, which kind of makes me sad because back then we were so free and we were so unsupervised and it was a wonderful place to grow up. And when I first met my husband and he told me he went to boarding school, I was like, oh man, what'd you do? Like, what? Oh yeah, like it was a punishment. Yeah, yeah, why'd they send you away? And he's like, no, no, no. It was very, you know, it was very, very, a huge opportunity to be able to go to the school. And I'm like, oh, okay. So it was an eye opener, but then when our our oldest son was like 12 or 13, John brought him to a baseball game or an alumni event. And we kind of opened Pandora's box by even letting him see that option. And he really wanted it. And he had just become bar mitzvah. And we'd gone through this whole thing about his independence and his capability. And how are you going to say, no, we don't think you should go away. And, you know, really it was about me. I didn't really want my children to go away. But when they wanted it, you have to say, okay, you know, we believe in you. So it then just started this trend in my family that I didn't see coming. It's not like we had planned on this. So even more so, I think when I'd show up at these campuses or we'd tour the campuses my kids were interested in attending, I was like, I've got to take notes. These places are amazing, but they're also, each of them a little quirky and weird, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> they're amazing, but there's some, there's some strange things. And so then the story, or just the setting, because I don't think the story is about a boarding school, but it's really like a rich setting. I just, when my, my kids' friends would come home for holidays or we'd take have dinners together, I just couldn't help registering the the anecdotes they'd tell me. And I just thought, this has got to be the backdrop for my next book. Yeah. And what made you decide to tell it from all the different viewpoints? Because it wasn't just Sam. Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, yeah. the original draft was really uh, Sam, a lot of Sam. And I told it in the close third person because I also wanted to give some some background about the school, some editorialization about the school. The narrator kind of had a, a little bit of a historical perspective about the school. And then I, you know, got some feedback that, you know, this boy's story on a campus, and I had been inspired by a lot of campus novels. I'm really a huge admirer of Curtis Sittenfeld mm-hmm. and Prep. And I thought, well, you know, what's going to be different about this book and why I really want to write it is because what happens to this mother-son relationship. And so the mom, Hannah, became a, a very strong point of view character. And I switched her perspective to the first person. She doesn't have a lot of friends. Her marriage is disintegrating and she's in her head a lot. She is thinking things through way too much. And so the best way to get her angst across and kind of what she's going through was to be in her head and write in the first person. And then I included this hockey coach because as he was the member of the faculty, he had a point of view and and insight that neither Hannah nor Sam could have. And it was a big part of the plot points. You needed to kind of see what was going on from the faculty point of view 
Also, Sean is new to the school as well. He's a 25-year-old hockey coach who's just shown up when Sam shows up to be the dorm parent. So I've always been intrigued with writing about an institution or like a prestigious, well-known, established place from an outsider's point of view. And Sean, the hockey coach, was just as much an outsider and new to the school as Sam and Hannah. And I saw it as kind of the three of them navigating this place, one from a parent's point of view, one from the student's experience, and then one from a faculty's member's experience. And tell me about the process of writing this book. And especially how does it compare to Eden, which you yeah. which came out first? So as I alluded to, this just first draft kind of ripped out of me as I was procrastinating the work on Eden. Like, give me a picture. Were you at a coffee shop? Were you at your yeah. desk? Were you wearing I, slippers? Yeah. Like, where so do you like to, I, wait, what um, time of day? Yeah, what time of day? Okay, so when I started taking myself seriously as a novelist, <laughs> I decided I would use my most creative, energetic hours to write. And that was a real flip for me because mornings used to be for exercise, friends, running around the city. I live in Boston, getting stuff done. And then I'd write in the afternoons if and when I felt like it. But once this became my job, I flipped everything around. So I wake up in the morning, I get a few like dog walking, breakfast type of few bills paid, but then I turn off the internet. And this is when I use like my hours of greatest energy. Being over 50, I won't say exactly I'm going to turn 54 (laughs) on Saturday. I get tired in the afternoons. (laughs) So I do like to write in the morning and I try to work for three to four solid hours and then leave the afternoons for all those other things that are important as well, appointments and things like that. So I think I probably came home with red marks all over the Eden manuscript, which is a hundred years of social history. It's about four generations of women in a family and the changes in like reproductive rights and how that really affected each generation. So it's a real family story, but it's set against the backdrop of American history and it's set in a summer community. And it had a whole bunch of point of views. Talk about my three point of views. I must have started out with like eight or nine. My first novel had all these allusions to Genesis and the Bible and it was this big family. Anyway, people are like, this is way too ambitious for your debut novel. And the main character isn't the right character. And it'll be good because you're a good writer and you can write a good scene and you can like, that's this house and these people are very vivid, but I think you need to totally rewrite this whole thing. Oh my gosh. And I was okay with that, but I'd already been at this for five years and I just like, it's just seemed overwhelming. And then I had, like I said, this other story percolating. So I'd sit at my desk, you know, nine o'clock and I'd look at all the red marks on the Eden manuscript. And and I said, well, maybe I'll just write a book that doesn't have the two timelines, that doesn't have all the characters that, you know, answers all these objections I'm getting about Eden. And at one point, a teacher, I take a lot of classes at Grub Street in Boston, a teacher who had seen both manuscripts suggested I try to get the nine published first. But then I felt like the girl who wasn't going to go home with her prom date. Like, <laughs> Eden took me to the prom. I actually and love that. I, I didn't want to leave with somebody else. I, I felt like Eden deserved to get across the finish line first. And so then I put the nine away. And luckily, after Eden had some success and my publicist said, you need to come out with another book, I was like, I actually have a manuscript that's pretty 
pretty far along. And so that's why I'm in this lucky position of having a novel come out two years after my first. It, it did take me six years to write on the side, but it's following with a nice period, of, you know, not too long period of time. So now after. you have to like get another I one. Know, <laughs> I, I, I know. I have another in the works. It's not going to be as fast. You know, it's so funny. I feel like there's so much pressure now because I ask everybody like, okay, what's coming next? And I feel like I'm adding to everybody's pressure because think about all the authors who maybe they wrote one amazing book and that was it. Today, you, it's like, you can't do that. You want to write a book. They're like, well, what are, what are your next four books going to be like? I feel like there's so much pressure to keep producing. Sometimes, I know. Right? I know. I do, I, feel, do but you feel know that what? way or is it just... Well, I got into this hoping maybe a hundred people would like Eden, you know, and it's had a lot, it's been received really well. And I feel like my definition of success might've been more modest than some other people's definition of success. I have to keep reminding myself that I've already connected with people. I've already like shown up for myself and published two books. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is success. And when I do feel like, oh my God, I got to get the next one done. I, I have to just say that is the most ungrateful attitude. Like, just wind it back. Your dreams have already come true. You get to spend every day writing. This is such a privilege. Like, the commercial stuff, you can get wrapped up in it. And, you know, obviously, you don't want to totally ignore it. I, I'm not that type of person. I do want my book in people's hands. But I already feel like, I don't know, the rest is just gravy. You know, the high holidays are coming up, and I've referred to a few Jewish things, but it's like the idea of Dayenu, right? Totally. <laughs> it yes. would have been enough to just yes. have Eden, and now to have the nine Dayenu, and like, who am I to think I'm going to be able to just keep giving people great stuff every two years? I, I need to really make sure it's worthy. worthy. I had something similar with my husband the other night. I was feeling like so stressed by all the emails and scheduling and whatever else, and he's like, you're doing this to have fun. Remember? You having fun? You having you're you enjoying yourself today? <laughs> I was like, um, it's like, cause remember, you're trying to enjoy yourself. <laughs> this is this is supposed to be your, your fun for you. So anyway, it, it totally. is fun. So it's hard, but it's hard with like, I don't know, I feel like the inbox and the I don't I know. know, all these like external things can make what you're doing seem no, more I agree. time sensitive than actually it needs to be. I so. agree. I agree. <laughs> Wait, so tell me about, you're on the board of the Brooklyn Book Festival. Uh, not Brooklyn, no. Boston. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> sorry. No, no, I no, just I'm, went to the Brooklyn yeah, Book Festival, so it's did, on yeah. my mind. But yeah, sorry. Boston Book Festival. Tell me about that. I haven't been well, to that yet. this wonderful woman, Deborah Porter, started it 10 years ago. So it's relatively new compared to other major cities book festivals. But it's a weekend in October where the entire Back Bay turns into like a college campus with all these public spaces, including the library and churches and event spaces, having wonderful readings, just like many book festivals. I think we've tapped in on the great literary culture in Boston and both nonfiction and fiction, both academic and very entertaining works. So Debbie asked me to be on the board about 18 months ago. And I think my role, I'm actually the treasurer. So I do have that background from Wall Street. And not that it's really helped with understanding the QuickBooks of the <laughs> Boston Book Festival, but I'm learning. I, I just love being involved. I One part of this writer's journey for me was becoming part of the literary landscape and community in Boston and meeting these people and like finding mentors and finding new people and learning from people. So yeah, I, I kind of said yes, and I'll do whatever you need me to do because I get to go to cocktail parties and go to events and meet amazing people and pick 
their brains and hear them speak about their books. It's an amazing opportunity. Yeah, there aren't that many communities you can join as adults. That And so being able to write a book and enter in or enter into this literary community in any way is yeah. kind of a blessing. I mean, you get it through your kids' schools, maybe, or if you don't have kids, you know, through work. Yeah, or like but, or the gym, temple or, or the, your gym. Yeah, it's yeah. not the same. It's there's, not the a, same. there's another group in Boston that I need to give a shout out to, which is called Grub Street. And yes, I was the, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's the Creative Writing that. Center. Yes. That's an amazing community of like teachers and and learners so you can sign up as a student and I think they touch you know thousands of people every year with both paid and free classes both adults and teens but that's where I found people who really helped me get Eden across the finish line really gave me encouragement on how to structure a book I could write a scene but I didn't understand the craft of what a novel needed to look like Mm -hmm. and then people who give you advice on finding an agent, how to get a book published, and then potentially blurbing your books. And it's just been amazing. So many generous people. And it's taught me about how to be a generous artist. I was a competitive athlete before where if somebody won, the other person lost. And in the writing world and in the world of publishing, I've learned that if one person wins, we all win. And Winning doesn't mean, if someone else wins, doesn't mean you lose. We can, we can all rise up if mm-hmm. more people read and, and there's good books out in the world and people know about them. So I've loved changing my outlook on life from like one that's a zero-sum game to one that's we can all, you know, lift each other up type of game. I interviewed Will Schwalbe, the author, yeah, and yeah. he's on a campaign to rebrand reading as radical listening. Because you're really listening, but you can't talk back when you're reading versus everything else we do in life. Anyway. I love that that's idea. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea. What kind of athlete were you? Oh, I'm a squash player. I still dabble. I still compete and play. But um, wow. yeah, I I played in college. I really learned in college. I hit my stride as a master's squash athlete. And when I turned 50, won the national championship in my age group. That's amazing. Yeah. So, but I got to start training for the 55. That's awesome. You know, I had this one moment when I was playing a lot of tennis and I was like, maybe by the time like I could be in the like 60 and up, you no, never you know. Get, what if I no. train for 20 years? You, know, like, you totally can because at this stage, it's a war of attrition. Like if my <laughs> knees and my hips last longer than everyone else's, I could do it. I could do it again. But that's another thing where we're all kind of hoping we we can all keep showing up at these tournaments and be like the yeah. old 80-year-old ladies playing squash. It's a great community of friends I've made through that as well. Oh, that's awesome. And tell me briefly about the Westerly Memoir Project. So Grub Street had something called the Boston Memoir Project, and it was replicated in Nantucket with a lot of people writing about that place, like a place that really has, evokes a lot of love and emotion a setting for people's lives and a lot of memory. And Westerly, where I spend half the year, is a similar type of place. It's right, it's South County, Rhode Island, right on the ocean. It's the very opening of Long Island Sound. And they're both people who've lived there. Well, they're people who go there for the summers and have a tradition, a family tradition of spending just the warm seasons there. And then there's a lot of people who've, you know, it's an important town year round as well. And I created this writing program to bring people together from all parts of Westerly to write personal narrative and share their stories with the idea that we would publish an anthology of essays. I haven't really gotten a lot of people wanting to work on their 
essays to the point where they're publishable. But we do have these amazing readings every six to 12 months at a bookstore there. And just the process of 12 people taking classes together and meeting each other, that they, these are people that would not be hanging out together otherwise, may not cross paths. But it's like building bridges because we all have similar stories. We all have the same hopes and dreams in our lives to be loved and connected and accepted. And, you know, anyway, it's been really great. So it's turned into like just summer months classes to now spring, summer, and fall. And it's been going four years. And and it actually has allowed me to be a teacher. I just taught some of the classes this past fall. And I'm looking forward to being a teacher as well. Do you have any parting advice to aspiring authors? I know you've woven in a lot throughout our conversation, but... Well, I think everybody is creative. And if you feel like your creativity wants to come out with words on the page then just start writing. I really did not know what I was doing when I started this. And I took a lot of classes and I got the help of a lot of people. So writing is just like any kind of muscle that you want to tone or any type of craft you want to learn. People who are gifted writers are, I don't know, they... I'd say you can learn this. Yes, there are people who are amazingly intelligent and gifted, and, and that might be evident in what they put out. But This is something you can really learn and work on and improve by reading and editing and and workshopping. And um, you shouldn't, you know, so many people say, oh, I've always wanted to write a book, but I can't do it. And it's the type of thing where just like one foot in front of the other seems daunting, but eventually it can get done if you put in the time. And also don't let people, you know, don't, don't accept the negativity. If people are discouraging, I would just move on and, and figure out, I'm kind of a story of a million rejections and just kind of making this happen for myself and figuring out how I could get this done. I had no MFA, no big writing credentials before I got my first book published. And, you know, it's not impossible. It's very hard, but it's not impossible. And even if you don't get your work published, the process of showing up for yourself every day and being creative and doing what, you know, you kind of want to do, it's really a gift to yourself. That's true. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Moms will have time at some point. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but maybe not at your point. Moms have to make time to read books. <laughs> That's right. Right. Anyway, Bye. thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club. Bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.